And welcome to the Holy Rose Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I'm Rob. And I'm Rachel. And we have a very special guest today with us. This is Dr. Jamar Tisby. Glad to be here to worship with you. That's a little inside joke from the first take that we had. Yes. You get a couple of pastors together, who knows what happens, oh, right? Yeah, start praying or something. I don't know. That's awesome. And we're so glad and, and, and honored and privileged that you would take time out of this very busy season for you to engage in this conversation it with us. It is a busy season. We call it at Simmons College of Kentucky, where I teach, Black History Season, Okay, not Black History Month. And so uh, this is coming mainly from our, our college president, uh, Reverend Dr. Kevin W. Cosby, who basically says Black History Season is from um, MLK Day in January up through Black History Month, of course, but extending throughout March and ending with uh, MLK's assassination mm -hmm. on April 4th is what he said. We need to take this whole like quarter yeah. to to examine black history. So you know, when you say busy season, you're absolutely right. It's sort of like the way I say it. It's like um, the Easter season is to pastors. Yeah. This is to like historians of race. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So th thanks for that, that, that introduction for us as well. So tell if people are unfamiliar with you, um, who you are, where you teach, and what you've published along the way, and what you're working on now. Yeah, Dr. Jamar Tisby, I am a an author. Uh, my first, first book is The Color of Compromise, mm -hmm. The Truth About the American Church's Complicity and Racism. So, you know, wonderful dinner table conversation That's right, right yeah. there. It needs to be, yeah. It, it, you know, it needs to permeate a lot of our conversations. And then the next book... You you know, that book kind of outlines the problem of how we got to saying 11 o'clock a.m. is the most segregated hour in America, right? And it's a historical survey showing all the ways that Christians, mostly white Christians, kind of failed <laughs> when it came to racial justice. And then you get to the end of that book and you're sort of left like, okay, I see the problem. How can I be part of the solution? What do we do now? Which is always the most frequent question I get is, what do we do? How can we fight racism? So that became my second book, okay. How to Fight Racism, uh, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. What that book does is lay out a framework I call the Arc of Racial Justice, which stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment, Arc. Mm -hmm. And I think just like legs of a stool, you need all three to have this firm mm -hmm. foundation to build your racial justice efforts. Mm -hmm. And then um, there's a young reader's version of that for ages eight years and up, I'd say through high school. And then um, my latest book is coming out in September of this year, and it's called The Spirit of Justice, mm -hmm. Stories of Faith, Race, and Resistance. And it's designed another historical survey, this time looking at the people who, instead of compromising with racism, courageously confronted it. And yes. it helps us who are on this journey continue to move forward because it can be so deflating and exhausting. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that will encourage the saints and more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. You also teach at Simmons College yes. of Kentucky. Uh -huh. I do a couple other yeah. things. I'm yeah. a professor yeah. of history at Simmons College of Kentucky, which is a historically black mm -hmm. uh, college, faith-based, which not all HBCUs are, and um, founded in 1879. So in order to be an HBCU, you must have two qualifications. Number one, you must have a historic mission to serve uh, black students. And then number two, you must have been founded before 1964. And so uh, we actually didn't officially gain HBCU status through the Department of Education until 2015, because wow. you also have to be officially accredited. Mm -hmm. And so Simmons is a bit of a comeback story. Founded in 1879, it's been through ups and downs. One of the biggest downs was during the Depression, where we actually lost our property. But um, through the help of St. Stephen Church in Louisville, they were able to buy back that original property that they wow. had lost back in the 1930s. So yeah. only story we know of, of of an HBCU regaining their original property after such a long period of time. And then other stuff I do, I speak nationally. I'm the founder and president emeritus of The Witness, a black Christian collective dedicated to black uplift through a Christian lens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, husband, father, all the good stuff. Yeah. All the good stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's, That's awesome. amazing. You're a busy man. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Last year, I, I'm a part of this this 
panel of sorts, really more so for me, a, a listening called Empower West Louisville. Yeah. And and last year we engaged in a conversation around your book. And so a lot of our uh, folks around here studied it and we did uh, small group studies and then we all came together at Crescent Hill Baptist Church, which is a, a Baptist church here in Louisville. And it was just for my congregation itself, such a, a beautiful, hard, difficult conversation um, that I so appreciated the leader guide and the videos that came with mm -hmm. it as well. Good. And it was just helped us from all of our youth to adults all studied the book and came together around it. And it, and it was really, really wow. good. Wow. Youth like back, like high school, college, that middle school and high school oh, no also way. studied That's the fantastic. book. Mm -hmm. cool. And and really, I would say in a lot of our conversations, they had better conversations than we did as older <laughs> adults. You know, yep. and so, but, but my question around that, and, and I would say, Hey, my congregation's question is what inspired you on that journey to both write that book and to become, um, a historian of sorts around racism within the American church. What inspired that? Anger, true, mm. righteous anger and a discontent. Mm. So I, I had to remember that. I had always had an interest in history. It was one of my subfields in college, but I hadn't delved into it formally for years. Yeah. It started becoming a much bigger part of my life when I moved down to the Mississippi Delta region um, in Arkansas, the Delta region of Arkansas. And I got down there through Teach for America, which is a two-year teaching program. It's wonderful. They take these fresh idealistic college grads and all that energy and they give you like a five-week teacher boot camp because none of us majored in education and then they toss you into the most difficult schools in the country and good luck right um, but it really was transformative for me and for a lot of other people who participated in the program and you get to go someplace you probably never would which for me was the delta i was born and raised in the midwest and never thought i'd be down there ended up in Phillips County, Arkansas, which is the fourth poorest county in the United States. Wow. And that is directly a result of uh, sharecropping and then before that race-based chattel slavery. So the Delta is cotton country. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people don't know about the Delta or, or haven't been there, but it's basically that swath on both sides of the Mississippi River from Memphis down to New Orleans. Very poor. Um, population is mainly black, so this is the highest concentration of black people in both Arkansas and Mississippi, mm. and it's also the poorest region of mm. both of those states, which again, direct result of that history. So this mm. history now starts to come alive in a way because all of the issues of um, racial injustice, particularly the racial wealth gap, are now walking into my classroom mm. on two legs yeah. every day. So mm. you, you, you know, underemployment and unemployment, uh, disinvestment in education, lack of housing and opportunities like that, all of that's real now. So now I'm starting to see the the, the relevance of history, but I'm a serious Christian, so you go to yeah. seminary. Yeah. And that's what I, I went to, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And as I graduated, I, I, I had begun at that point, this around 2015, to really see racism in the church, experience mm -hmm. it. And so it was pretty clear to me by that point, I wasn't going to do what I thought I was going to do, which was end up pastoring a church mm -hmm. in this predominantly white Presbyterian denomination. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, what do I do now? And uh, my wife was like, get your PhD. I'm like, are you sure? Because I was just in school for five years getting this master's. Are you, are you ready for that again? And uh, so I applied to the University of Mississippi and it's in the midst of that coursework is your first two years. You're just absorbing, yeah. just reading dozens and dozens of books. Whenever Christians would come up, they were usually on the wrong side of racial justice. Yeah. Mm. And that was infuriating. But then even more, I say we have what I call an impressionistic view of the past. Mm. In other words, we have impressions about the past. We have impressions there was racism and lynching and, and, and we have impressions about the civil rights movement. There's Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and the speech. But when you get down to the details, we don't know that many details, mm -hmm. unless you've intentionally undertaken a study. But broadly speaking, right, that was my case for sure. But then I go into these classes and I'm reading these books and I'm hearing the names, the dates, the places, the torture that happened. Mm -hmm. And it builds in me what Martin Luther King Jr. called the fierce urgency of now. Yeah, yeah. If things have been this bad, 
and we're certainly living in the legacy of them, then the problem is we're not doing enough. <laughs> And so that is what started to birth this idea of the color of compromise. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I remember studying through that book of yours and watching the videos and it became uh, an intense conversation with my congregants, especially my older white congregants mm. about it. Mm. And it, it opened up this reality that I'm not sure they ever really took seriously. And that became, and then to hear you speak about it in person, they came back and I told this story on, on a previous episode and it's connected about how a woman came up after one of our sessions and she, she was mad. And I was like, oh, here we go. You know, like, what is she going to say? And how is she going to yep. say it? And I get it probably in my own like little pastor voice and, you know, I'm ready, you know, okay, I know something's about to happen. And she goes, I'm mad. And I, I, I can tell this, you know, and why are you so angry? Where are these feelings coming from? Why are we just now talking about it? Wow. And that became a framework. This has been about a year now of why we have these conversations within the church um, because we need to be mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder for you, as you delved into the history of racial justice, particularly with, Christian roots a part of there and where we found ourselves in the state of complicity over and over again. Can you highlight some key historical trends that you find particularly important for our audience to hear? So meaning, you know, some like key historical points or events kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, this goes way back. Um, it, it, it's not as if, there's some period in our nation's history where where things were great for black people, other people of color, which is to say these notions of racism and white supremacy have been around since before there was something called the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, we're, we're going back to things like the doctrine of discovery, um, which uh, is, uh, is written about in a book called Unsettling Truths um, by Mark Charles and Soon Chan Ra. And this is a papal bull, uh, um, an edict from the Pope in the 15th century that basically says, go forth, any pagan lands you encounter, God is with you and God blesses you to conquer them and to convert the people there mm -hmm. or, you know, kill them if you have to. Yeah. So, so that gives this sort of divine imprimatur on European explorers. But as we pull back the layers, we got to ask why they're exploring. And it's not just for like, like Star Trek, you know, to go forth and <laughs> seek new life and new civilizations, right? It's for money. Mm -hmm. They're going to these different lands to strip them of their natural resources and sell them for a profit. And that, that is really the key around racism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So the ideology of, you know, hatred because of someone's skin color, ethnicity, culture, that sort of follows behind the profit motive. Yeah. So, so the reason why you need to enslave people, people feel the need to enslave people, is because uh, they want to maximize profit and minimize loss. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's happening in U.S. history. So in 1667, there's the uh, Virginia Assembly, which is white Episcopal men, Christians, who pass a law that say slavery will not emancipate an enslaved Native American person of African descent or mixed race descent. Why did they need to pass that law? There was a dispute between Christian missionaries and plantation owners that said, well, if you proselytize and start preaching the gospel to all these enslaved people and they become Christian, they're now our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're not supposed to enslave them by European custom, right? Yeah. By English common law. So what do we do about that? So basically the missionaries said, well, I mean, we need to get their souls saved. And the plantation owner said, as long as you stop there. Yeah. So you can preach, you can baptize, you can have them go to church, but you will that will not free them. They'll still be our slaves and not just slaves, they'll be our property. Mm -hmm. And that was what's really unique about U.S. race-based chattel slavery is not only that it was based on skin color, but that it transformed people into property. 
So they were not considered human, legally speaking, and even spiritually for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So that's just, you know, they're uh, tracing it from there. But those themes of, you know, money and profit motive, um, along with this sort of divine permission to do these things is really what sets the trajectory for the U.S. and Christianity. Yeah. Gosh, where, what do you think the modern equivalent is that right now today? So I think about this a lot, you know, what does, what, what, what are the, what is the bitter fruit of race-based chattel slavery as we would see it today? Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of manifestations. One that I think is pretty direct is uh, mass incarceration. So the Equal Justice Initiative, um, led by Brian Stevenson, does a great job at the Legacy um, Museum to trace this direct line historically from race-based chattel slavery all the way up to modern-day mass incarceration. The reason why I mention that is there's really no other sector of society that has such direct physical control of Black bodies. Yeah which was a hallmark of race-based chattel slavery. They literally physically controlled you, where you could go, um, what you could do, torture for punishment, chain shackles, all that. The closest approximation we have to that now is modern day incarceration. Yeah. And I've taught in prisons for several years. And what really is soul killing, even as an outsider, is to go into these prisons, grown men, robust, strapping men. I've only taught in male prisons. And um, their shoulders are kind of bowed. Their heads are kind of lowered among the authorities there, right? Because they know any perceived infraction, they could go to solitary, they could face some sort of punishment or recrimination, right? But then at the same time, there's this bravado and this machismo that you have to have among your fellow, you know, incarcerated people. But to see the the... the the fact that they just know they're controlled and they control their behavior based on that it's just like a diminishing of the human spirit and i can only imagine that's what slavery must have been like for so many diminishing yeah. of the human spirit yeah mm. those are how you articulated that of of uh, the process of incarceration is dehumanizing in and of itself mm -hmm. i was doing a hospital visit uh, a couple weeks ago and i went down to uh, norton downtown and it was, I've done a few classes and ministries uh, with incarcerated, usually female. Um, and, and for the first time, um, I saw something I, I had never seen before. And I was checking in at the info desk and the elevator dinged and opened and out came um, someone in, incarcerated. I mean, wearing the orange jacket and had his hands handcuffed. And there was a, a police officer in front and behind. They were transporting him back after he'd received health care. Um, but he... I had never seen somebody with shackles on their feet mm. and the sound that that made. Mm. He also happened to be a person of color. He's a black man about our age. Right. And that, that sound that that made like is not okay. You know what I mean? Mm. It was just that stick with me of like this man needed medical care and, and he went to the hospital and got it. But I had so many questions. Right. Um, and just reminded me of just like that process of incarceration in and of itself, yes. of taking outside, you know, of like of being locked up, whether it's solitary, that process in and of itself is, is traumatizing. And we're taking people who, yes, have broken some laws who maybe have made mistakes, but there's always a why, you know, mm -hmm. and what do we do with hurt, traumatized, you know, people, we, we make it that much worse. We re-traumatize yes. them. Exactly. And we wonder why we have trouble with reentry or we have trouble with, yeah, so I didn't kind of go off on that tangent, but the way that you articulated the diminishing of the human spirit, like mm. I could see it in that man's eyes because mm. I looked in his eyes, you know, and it was, it, that, that will stick with, this haunted me in yeah. the best of ways. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, um, we can't ignore, it cannot be out of sight, out of mind when it comes to mass incarceration. And it goes all the way back to the 13th Amendment, which mm -hmm. is one of the Reconstructions, uh, Reconstruction Amendments. And it's the exact amendment, a constitutional amendment it, it took to uh, legally abolish slavery, right? It wasn't the Emancipation Proclamation that was limited. So it took this constitutional amendment, but there's the exception clause in there. Mm -hmm. So it says you can't you know, enslave a person or, or hold them in bondage unless they've been duly convicted of a crime. Yeah. 
which is the loophole. There's your free labor loophole. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Lease the convict leasing and and um, even today exploitation, labor exploitation mm -hmm. within prisons. So, yeah, I think that's one of the direct results of it, along with a constellation of others. But, you know, as we look at that, again, that physical control and those literal yeah. physical chains, they're still around. Yes, yeah, absolutely. The um, uh, Ava DuVernay, the thirteenth yes. uh, documentary on Netflix. Go out and watch it if you. Oh haven't. my word! Mm -hmm. It is f it is phenomenal in the worst and best of ways. But tracing that from the Thirteenth Amendment on to mass incarceration and uh, the war on uh, drugs and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. just yeah, this is well done. Doctor Tisby, based on on your research, and and I wonder if you can help us with this. What challenges have, I mean, it doesn't even need to be research at this point. What challenges do you feel like religious faith communities, and I would say particularly churches in the South, mm -hmm. what do you think their their challenges are when it comes to having engaging in conversations like this one? Uh, how has that been seen and, and how has that been overrided or, or engaged with? What comes to your mind there? There are a couple of things that come to mind. One, another resource recommendation. So go out and watch 13th. And then if you don't already um, have this book in your church library and your pastor study divided by faith yeah. by yeah. Michael Emerson and yeah. Christian Smith. Uh, sociologists really, I think, help us understand what some of the social impediments are, particularly for white Christians to, yeah. to really healthily engage in dialogue about racism. Um, one of the points that they bring up is the individualism that pervades white evangelical mm -hmm. um, notions of theology and the, how that influences their views on race and racism. Yeah. So if I could get all the white Christians in the U.S. in a room and <laughs> tell them one message about racism is that racism is more than... Um, about your individual attitudes or interpersonal relationships. Racism has to do with uh, systems and structures that create and perpetuate inequality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, it tends to be difficult for a lot of white Christians to understand because they understand racism as this attitudinal thing and this relational thing, which is how they tend to understand their, their religion right. is um, how I feel about fascinating God. correlation there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which mm -hmm. is what they're bringing out this white evangelical toolkit. They talk about this, you know, just me and my Bible and mm -hmm. my personal relationship with God, right? There's this hesitance in some areas, particularly race, to understand the communal and social implications of the gospel. So that then makes it very difficult to understand why people are making such a big deal in the 21st century about racism, right? I don't, I don't. I don't hate black people. Some of my best friends are black, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't harbor any animosity. I have great relationships with people of color. So I'm not, ra I don't have a racist bone in my body mm. is the phrase, right? And that may be true, but all of your sort of goodwill and heart to heart conversations at Starbucks or whatever, doesn't do anything about the fact that black mothers die in maternity related deaths at three times the rate of yeah. white women. Doesn't do anything about the fact that the median white family has 10 times the wealth of the median black family. Doesn't do anything about the fact that black people are disproportionately incarcerated, though we're only 13% of the population, we're more than 40% of incarcerated people, right? So those structural things that don't require, you know, individual animus mm. to, to continue to persist, that's what I find that a lot of white Christians struggle with. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That communal aspect, because it's like if we can check, it's all about our personal devotion time and our personal, my personal sin, you know, and, and check, I'm, I've, I've been forgiven, you know, right. and I'm good. And I went to church this morning and, but sort of that, that critical aspect piece of, of, and maybe it's kind of the American culture we run up against too, of this individual, I can pick myself it's up by my Western. own bootstraps. Yep. Yeah, this. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's a kind of a broader, broader scope there. But, uh, you know, I, I sense that sometimes in my own preaching and teaching, mm. uh, trying to draw them outside of themselves. If, mm. if the root of all sin is sort of that pride, that ego, you know, of then, then being re redeemed, you know, it's kind of drawing you outside of yourself to, to, to love and care for other people, Absolutely. you know, and, um, and we've lost so much of that communal aspect. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and, and part of why the black church tradition it's a little bit more intuitive for us to think that way is because we always get treated 
not as an individual, but as part of a class or a group, mm -hmm. right? So analogy I always use when I was in seminary, if I did poorly on a test, it wasn't just, oh, Jamar didn't do well on a test. It's black people yeah. can't really cut it here. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and whereas my white counterparts, um, you know, if Johnny did poorly on the test, well, that's just Johnny. He had a late night, whatever, right? It's not, oh, white people aren't, you know, right. really they, ready for seminary. They right? get to represent themselves, whereas exactly. you carry with you, yeah. For, yeah. for, for better or worse, you know, sometimes that's a, a, an, an unfair burden, but, but also it, it helps you think about justice in a different way because it's mm -hmm. not just for me, it's for mm -hmm. we. Mm -hmm. And I find that that is a... There's there needs to be an intentionality on the part of a lot of white people to get there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And how sad is it that as white as white Christians, like that Christian, like being a part of the body of Christ, you know, you should you should mm -hmm. think we before me, mm -hmm. and yet, oh man. <laughs> yeah, we could apply that to so many issues right now. We where could. I mean, we're talking oh, about race-based chattel slavery and how baptism wouldn't emancipate a fellow Christian, right? Yeah. And the idea is that within the household of God, you have certain responsibilities and obligations toward one another because you're not united by the Holy Spirit. Well, what if we think about, you know, people trying to get into the country who are mm -hmm. Christians, about people who are being bombed using U.S. funding and they're Christians, mm -hmm. about, you know, people who are homeless or houseless and they're Christian. And yet, you know, even in the present day, should we last that long you know 40 50 60 years from now yeah christians in the future might be saying how can christians treat other christians that way yes how did how yes how did that happen how was that allowed to happen um yeah i i think a lot of in our american context especially you know for white people i'm afraid that we're formed more by our political ideology Absolutely. and whatever news station we listen to that's on how many hours a day I can't even imagine than they are about coming and hearing someone, you know, me teach for an hour mm -hmm. or to do a Bible study. Yeah, that's great. Sure. But you know, think about the media that you're consuming, the words that you're consuming, I think much more formed in our worldview. And so, and sometimes I think there's a stronger allegiance to whatever that political ideology is that's right. that's more right. so than Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I just got done uh, interviewing Michael Ware who wrote a new book called um, The Spirit in Our Politics. And mm. he is a former Obama staffer. Uh, he worked in the office of like faith-based and community partnerships, uh, is, a, is a devout Christian. What he's arguing in this book is exactly what you're saying. So much, so many of us on the left and the right derive our identity from our politics mm -hmm. and um, the brand, whether Democrat or the Republican. Party, yeah. yeah. And what he's saying is like, that is, first of all, so far disordered, right? It's an idolatry. And it's so far downstream of what people of faith should start with, which is your own sort of character. Yeah. And so the subtitle of that book is Spiritual Formation and the Renovation of Our Public Life. So what mm -hmm. he's arguing is we need to become the kind of people who care about the poor, the prisoner, the immigrant, right? But we're actually malformed spiritually because we actually don't have, in many cases, a robust enough idea of what it means to be Christian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It really yep. comes from a very shallow understanding of Christianity to say that I can very closely identify with any political party and that sort of defines me. He, he's also making the case that we misunderstand politics, right? Like it's not supposed to be in all of life, this is my identity thing. Yes. That we say, because you should be able to say, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, and not have the assumption placed on you that you completely identify with everything that party does. Yes. Right? Yes. Correct. So that's part of the disordering too. But I just love what he's saying about, it's about who we are and what we bring to politics before it's even yes. about politics itself. Yeah, that spiritual formation piece first of like becoming more like, I don't know, maybe Jesus, you know, <laughs> becoming more like that person. That sounds like a good concept you know? for Christians. But, yeah. you know, there's an irony there, right? Because I just said, like, the issue is too much individualism yep. in, in a lot of Christianity, which is this inward turn. But even in that inward turn, we're not focusing on the right things, yeah, like, right, like right. healthy character formation. Right. We're still being malformed, even as very individualistically minded folks 
we still aren't doing those habits and practices, whether prayer or one of the things he says in the book that I love is just silence and solitude. Yes. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that would be very uncomfortable for some of us, but very healthy for all of us. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you know, it, it's always, that's what racism does. It, mm -hmm. it has these embedded contradictions and illogical inconsistencies, whether judging someone based on their skin color, the amount of melanin in your skin, or let's be hyper individualistic, but actually let's not turn a critical eye toward ourselves and our own spiritual formation. Yeah. yeah wow. What yeah. do you think that the root of that is, you know, what would you call the, the root of that kind of that turning inward individualism, but also the struggle with, with the words of Christ that people hear every Sunday morning, you know, mm -hmm. that turns them outward, but then they come back to the me and Jesus moment. It, fear. Is it, uh, security or identity what yeah. how would you say what, the, what that root would be it's a probing question and i think it probably has a lot of different answers sure. speaking historically i think money has a lot to do with yeah. it yeah i mean we are the wealthiest country in the world and as much as the bible talks about money i feel like that has an influence on our spirituality mm -hmm. in the way we do church and the way we understand christianity so we've we've morphed christianity in this wealthy nation into, into another cause of comfort, mm -hmm. um, you know, to be part of the group, to be, to identify as Christian has been up till recent times, more of an advantage than a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Um, it gives you a sort of group identity, mm -hmm. right? You're in this group, which unfortunately tends to be defined by what you're against and right. who you're against. Yes. Right. Um, but I think, the ways that money, wealth, greed, comfort have sort of crept into and, and, and just not having this experience of, of real deep marginalization and persecution that a lot of Christians around the world do. Yeah. Sure. And even in our own country, you know, when you think of, of black Christians, right? Um, that teaches you, disciples you, if you will, into a certain way of thinking about religion that is pretty far afield from the Christ who came and, you know, didn't have a, a place to be born and had yeah. to be born in a manger. Right. Yeah. But you list all those things of things. And, and that would be, if you would ask a congregation, what are you uncomfortable hearing sermons about? What are you uncomfortable discussing on Wednesday nights? We have money, we money. have race. We can add all <laughs> yeah. those things together money. and this, we're yeah. in trouble. Yeah. We're in deep, deep, deep trouble. And all of a sudden it feels jarring to folks be like that woman that came back to me, why are we just now talking mm -hmm. about this? You know, yeah. but anyways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're kind of getting, getting there, but sort of looking ahead, if you could help us like just cast the vision of like the, the church, big C church, American church, you know, including predominantly white churches, like what do you see or hope for? kind of in this ongoing struggle for racial justice of the, the role that the big church can play, uh, you know, in, in this ongoing work. So if you've sort of read between the lines here, for me, the big issue with racism isn't primarily the ideology of treating people differently because of their skin color. I mean, certainly that's part of it, but it's really about the material aspects yeah. and the way this works out in terms of the quality of life. So again, going back to Emerson and Smith's Divided by Faith, they talk about different phases of um, racism. And one of the things that I say in Color of Compromise is racism never goes away, it adapts. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, race-based chattel slavery, right? Then you move to Jim Crow segregation. And then now Emerson and Smith talk about we live in a racialized society, a racialized society, which means these overt forms of, of racial segregation and, and, and um, prejudice aren't as accepted anymore. You could argue they're coming back, but um, yeah. what, what, what the real pernicious uh, aspects of racism look like today are any major quality of life factor you can name still falls predictably along racial lines. Mm -hmm. So whether that's life expectancy, educational attainment, uh, wealth, all of that has falls along racial lines, mm -hmm. right? And you shouldn't be able to predict 
someone's average lifespan because of their skin color, yeah. right? So that's what remains. That's where the church has to think creatively and intervene. And so this is where the arc of racial justice comes in. It's no one thing, right? It's not all awareness. It's not all just, you know, reading the books, having the book study or the Bible study. That's part of it. We got to know what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Nor is it all relational, which white Christians love. Well, let's get together. <laughs> let's do the pulpit swap. Yeah, let's have yeah, the yeah. coffee. Let's, you know, have the conversation and the friendship and whatever. Yeah. That's good too. I'm not saying, you know, all of a sudden be mean, stop trying mm -hmm. to be nice to folks or kind to folks, but that's not, that's necessary, but not sufficient. You also have to have commitment by which I mean, not just staying the course, but committing to changing these systems and these policies and these infrastructures. So making a plan mm -hmm. at a congregational level or even a denominational level that says, what are we going to do? for the next three months, three years, to raise awareness strategically, right? Yeah. Um, books we're gonna read, movies we're gonna watch, discussions we're gonna have, guests we're gonna invite. Mm -hmm. What are we gonna do strategically to build relationships of solidarity? Individual, yes, um, particularly for white people, because historically, white folks have done a great job putting up walls yeah. between them and everyone else. So now you're gonna have to be even better at building bridges, right? Mm -hmm. But not just individually, with communities. Um, so the sociology tells us what really changes the mind of a white person is not that one relationship or that one black best friend. It's having a chorus of voices mm -hmm. who are different mm -hmm. and, and see the world differently. And then you're like, oh, well, maybe I need to rethink what my community has told me. And then lastly, you know, what are you going to commit to? Whether that's, um, you know, trying to pull levers around mass incarceration, around voting rights. Um, a, a real big one is reparations, mm -hmm. which I say in the color of compromise, or maybe it's how to fight racism. I say the only other R word uh, scarier than racism is reparations mm -hmm. yeah. for white people, because that has to do with the redistribution of wealth. And, and there's just been this politicization of, you know, government handouts or, welfare, you know, being all this evil and nefarious mm -hmm. thing. But if you just look at the history, because what was race-based chattel slavery? It was labor exploitation. Mm -hmm. So for two centuries, black people literally built the wealth of this nation through their blood, sweat, and tears, and we were not paid. Yeah. And it didn't happen after emancipation, and it didn't happen at the mm -hmm. dawn of the 20th century, and it hasn't happened since. And then when you get down to it, you know, whether it's health or education or housing or wealth, so much of that can be traced to being emancipated from physical chains, but then shackled to the chains of poverty. Yeah. yeah. Of like the reparations of like, what does true equity look yeah. like? Yeah. It, yeah. There's generations of inequality, not just inequality, but that, yeah, that piece. Um, and can I just yeah. get real practical? Like, please. We have a lot of wealthy churches who, when you really analyze, especially if they're older churches, when you analyze how they gain that wealth, it's probably because it was hoarded and kept from others, whether that's through exclusive housing in neighborhoods where you could continually increase property values and appreciate and value and whether you hand that down to your children or sell it for a profit or you have better schools which lead to better jobs whether it's through literal slave labor if you go back far enough to some of these historic churches right um and regardless of how they got the money what do we owe each other there's so many pastors of in particular black congregations that they're not full-time they're by or tri-vocational, right? What does it look like to pay a full-time salary so somebody can devote themselves to the work and the life of the church, right? Or pay off the mortgage, right? Or churches coming are coming together to pay off um, medical bills for people. Um, yeah. Or even just as simple as, I, I talked about the witness before. We're a nonprofit. And we don't have the same black people in general, black Christians in particular, don't have the same networks of resources, right? People you can go to and say, hey, we need $10,000 to pull off this conference or will you be a sponsor, whatever like that. 
supporting the entities that are already doing the work and having mm -hmm. the humility to say, we don't have to create the solution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We can come alongside those who are already doing it. Yeah. yeah. That is such a good challenging and convicting word for us, Dr. Tisby, because it's, it's a one thing to say we support, we affirm, we have coffee with, we pulpit swap, right. but it's another thing to say, no, we're actually in this and we want to see sustainable change going forward. And that does mean something financially. Here goes with the things we're not comfortable talking about, right? Right. Because it costs us something and it should, right, to engage in that. I think there's so much when I, when I engage in conversations in Louisville, whether it's with Empower West or with other um, black pastors, there's this big distrust between a black mm -hmm. congregation and white congregations because there has been so much of the we take a picture we have coffee we use this for our social media accounts and we move on but we didn't actually do any kind of thing we maybe relation built for about two minutes and that's mm -hmm. it right but i love what you're pointing us towards and it also makes it so we can't get excuse that it's this huge systemic problem mm -hmm. we can't do anything about it well right. no you can that's right. good you can. that's right mm -hmm. Okay, very practical, you know, steps. I really, uh, I really appreciate that. And what the word that I was hearing as you were speaking is partnership. Yep. Right. And that's pretty, that's pretty biblical. That's in the gospel and this idea. And especially I think among white churches in my experience of growing up in this denominational, even in a large church like Louisville, we, here comes the individual piece again. We tend to operate like we're our own and we're, we're competitive against one another. And it's all about our own kind of success, usually according to, you know, wealth and butts and seats. Yep. And, and this idea of even working together, you know, is like, Oh, I don't know if, but whose member would they be, you know? And, <laughs> but you're calling us to think even, you know, you said creatively even farther beyond of like, what would it look like to pay a full-time salary for a, a, a black pastor in a predominantly black church that could you know, a, like a livable wage that he or she doesn't have to work three, exactly. three jobs to yep. have. Yep. If, um, and not in a paternalistic way, which is back to your word, partnership. Partnership. Right? That's, partnership. That, that implies yeah. an equality to it and not yes. a, I'm paying the bills, so you're going to do what I say, which no. is unfortunately, no. like I could tell you appalling stories, stories that if they put it in a movie, you'd be like, this is too heavy handed. This is way mm -hmm. too, but, but literally this like, you know, church planting situations where, okay, you go in the inner city, you plant this church, but we're paying the bill. So you're going to do it our way, mm. even though it's like a totally different population. And these are grown folks who have the spirit of God and should be able to make decisions anyway. But yeah. that spirit also is, is part of it. So that's where that relational aspect tends mm -hmm. to come in is that I see you as a human being, as mm -hmm. a full human being, and I won't, it makes it harder than to, to, to have this paternalistic view mm -hmm. of, you know, I, I have the money, so I know best. Mm. So here you go. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've offered us so much practical advice. I really appreciate it. Is there any, maybe last word of like, uh, people like Rob and I, like white pastors and predominantly white churches of how we can be supporting maybe a specific question of like, our black colleagues mm -hmm. or people of color kind of in our, in our system, in our denomination. So it really helps for white folks to minister to other white folks when it comes to racism. Uh, you save me a lot of time yeah, and, and, and stress. Um, I was listening to uh, uh, another podcast recently, and um, it, it's with actors and directors and quote unquote storytellers, right? And they were making the point that art can really move people and shift opinions, especially when it does it in a more oblique way. So it's not directly saying we're addressing racism, hmm. but it's telling stories or giving examples. And I wonder what that would look like in the life of a church where we are promoting the very biblical idea that all people are, are made in God's image, but moving beyond the sort of generalities of that, that when it comes to race, if all people are made in God's image, what does that mean? And I think approaching it in a sort of sideways manner to not beat people over the heads with it and thus arouse a direct defense and, you know, stiff arming of that content. So that would look like, to me, structurally, number one, this is on the website. If I, as a black person, cannot find on your church website 
some statement that you have around racial justice, I'm mm -hmm. already a little concerned. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. if it doesn't warrant a place on the webpage, what place will it have in the life of the mm -hmm. congregation, right? Yeah. Number two, when there's a new members class, right? Typically, it's the sort of same curriculum, if you will. Is this incorporated into it from the from the beginning such that you can say to people, we would love for you to be an official member of this congregation. But before you do that, we want you to know what we believe and where we stand on issues of racial justice. If that's not for you, God bless you. If it is, come on in. Um, another way to do that is not just sort of the sermon series on race or during Black History Month or MLK Day or whatever. Do those, that's fine. But also, is this part of the regular diet of teaching such that mm -hmm. it's not special yeah. mm -hmm. to bring yeah. it up, to bring in, and, and you don't have to make a big thing of it, right? Mm -hmm. Quoting Howard Thurman, black mm -hmm. mystic yeah. and theologian, right? Um, giving historical examples for, for um, your illustrations that incorporate different people, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about Fannie Lou Hamer or Ida B. Wells and, and what they experienced in their life, whether the big things or the mundane things, right? In your pastor's study or your library, you know, somebody walks in and they see this, this incredible array of people who are influencing your thinking and not mm -hmm. just white Western, mostly male mm -hmm. dead theologians, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things make it part of who you are and make it part of your disposition and start to massage and incorporate these ideas of racial justice into the congregation just through what you're already doing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I would think about those kinds of things, how you can make this less of an event, less of an occasion, less of a season, and more of an entire disposition and attitude. Yeah, oh, I love that. Yeah. I like the word you said, diet, just the steady diet of what you are, you know, feeding the people, yep. so to speak. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Absolutely. Well, our formation has to be, if we're going to expect this of our own congregations, our formation has to be what's setting that up, right? Because mm -hmm. that'll naturally hopefully come through us in the ways that we preach it. So it doesn't feel like oh, I, I check this off. You've got to embody it. Yeah. 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 The more I do this racial justice work, I say this again and again, it's less about the change we see out there in the world, or at least as much about that as it is about the change in ourselves, mm -hmm. about who we are becoming. Mm -hmm. And the more that congregational and faith leaders can embody this idea of the beloved community, yeah. the more they can influence the people who, who they're teaching and discipling. And, and the more it comes as a natural overflow and not this sort of add on mm -hmm. yeah. like you do christmas decorations yeah. for a little while and then take them down no this is actually just our our lighting you yeah. know yeah. our everyday lighting when yeah. we turn on the switch and need to see this is what's always here i love that mm. yeah i love that yeah well we so appreciate the time that you've given us dr tisby this has been so good for my own soul and mm -hmm. i know it's going to be so good for our colleagues uh, souls and other people that we um, have uh, have the privilege of entering into your homes or workout spaces or going for a walk. We're, <laughs> we're glad you're here with us. Every episode, we have done this kind of part called the Holy Roast. And, <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about the title. <laughs> yeah, okay, here we go. Here we go. And the Holy Roast is kind of this leaders in the hot seat. And uh, so we're going to ask you a series of questions. Rock and roll. Rapid and fire. Right. I don't think I have enough caffeine for this. But, okay. <laughs> Rapid fire That's questions. Okay. That's okay. So we're going to ask you, and the first thing that comes to your mind, throw it out there for us. You can elaborate or not if there's a good story, right? That comes with it. But so here they are. So what are you reading right now? <laughs> um, this could be per professional or um, I, I don't, personal. I don't read heavy stuff okay. because if I, if I read it's, it's, it's a rare moment I get. So the book, um, is it, is it sniper or shooter? But uh, it's this, most people wouldn't like it. It's these thrillers, <laughs> right? It's I, sh I shouldn't like it, um, <laughs> but I'm reading it, and it's actually this particular author is is a very. It, it takes place in Arkansas, where I used to live, okay. and has a very acute sense of the racial dynamics. Even though he's a white author, yeah. I like I'm fascinated about how he's using dialogue, like insider dialogue, both black and white. And the words they would use and the language they would use, I'm like, yeah. that's pretty darn accurate. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. 
That's awesome. We'll have to look that one up. We'll yeah, I'll up. have to look it up because I can't even remember <laughs> the title stressful. exactly. What's keeping you alive right now? Oh wow, um, hot baths. Ooh. Nice. <laughs> Dude, listen, I am I am self care all day, right? Yes. yes. Mm. Uh, both the cheap and the less cheap um, forms <laughs> of it, but uh, literally just um, we have one of those tubs where the water can actually go up kind of to your shoulders kind of a thing man if i'm stressed if i'm sore if i am can't get to sleep a hot bath hot bath yeah with some with some bath salts yeah, for okay. sex, you right. know oh, yeah there i ain't go. look man <laughs> go on and do it get some get some oil on your skin make sure that say <laughs> supple and take care of yourself amen yeah, yeah take that. care of yourself <laughs> what are five things on your nightstand five things are a lamp Oh, my Bluetooth speaker, because mm -hmm. I always sleep with like sounds or something. Okay. Uh, <laughs> phone and watch charger, um, chapstick, and uh, saline drops for your nose. Okay. Mm, there you there go. go. Get it dry. <laughs> What's your favorite way to unwind after a long day? Well, I already mentioned hot bath. So That's let me right. think of something else. Um, unwind after a long day. I mean, there's stuff I just try to do, like walks, sure. Uh, for sure. Um, I, I what? I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. Like what we watch on TV. Sure. Yeah. All right. Let me try to think of something that's okay <laughs> for a bunch of clergy. Uh, that are probably watching trash on Netflix yeah, too. We're, so we're it's probably okay. right there with you. <laughs> well, funny enough, because my son just got into the the series Bones. Um, okay. So, so we watched those together. He just likes to see the body at the beginning, like it's in its state of, you know, however they find it. It'll always some new scenario, and then I like the 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 characters behind it. Okay. Good casting. My husband has watched that one. Yeah, yeah. That was not as bad as I thought it was oh, going to no, be. That could have well, been so much worse. One, but I, uh, I, mean... I was like, I've been watching Love Is Blind. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, Reacher is the other series I've Reacher. been watching. I read the whole series. There's like 27 books. I've read them all. Nice. That's awesome. Nice. So, so Last... I can get as trashy as you want. But yeah, I tried to keep it light. <laughs> that could be our after conversation here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So last question. You're called up to bat. And you're about to get hit that ball. What's your walk-up song oh to the my. plate? Oh my! Um, well, this is not safe for church, right? <laughs> but uh, "Victory" by uh, Diddy and Notorious B.I.G. There we go. Ooh, there you yeah. go. Yeah, you got to look that one up. But it's it's a hype song. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you again. This has been an honor, privilege to host you on this, and and I do hope that you will check out. We will link in the mm -hmm. the comments and every all those sections, all his, his books and podcasts and everything else that keeps him so busy. And my Substack, like that's the way where you can keep up with my latest writing and thinking. Jamartisby.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber and help support my work of awesome. historical truth telling and racial justice. Yeah, go. that's yeah. so good. Well, thank you so thank much you. for doing this. Thank you. Thank you.